Well, that may have tipped you off. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians, the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, This is, of course, uh, the first extended series I'll be preaching through uh, with you as a church. If you remember last week, uh, in the Sunday morning service, I took some time to talk about the theme and the purpose of the book, and I suggested that the theme of this book has to do with our mindset or the way that we think. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to think on certain things uh, near the end of the book. And then if you were with us in the Sunday evening service, I took the time to work through the first eight verses of, the, of chapter one. And there we established that one of, the, uh, one of the ways that Paul would describe the proper mindset for a believer is he would use the word gospel to describe that. Uh, we must have a gospel mindset. And uh, once that meditation is in our heart and we started working through the book, we realized that uh, to have a gospel mindset, we must be committed to our gospel partners, those fellow believers in this local assembly and perhaps even beyond in other churches. And so uh, if you're following along this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. Just to let you know, there is a handout if you'd like to take notes in that way. In your bulletin, you can find it there. Near the top of that handout, I describe what's going on in verses 3 through 11. In verses 3 through 11, Paul describes four marks, four characteristics of those who are committed to their gospel partners, to Christian partners. And only gospel partners will be able to say things like the following. In your notes there, the first uh, mark of a Christian partner is that we can say, I continually thank God for you, verse 3. I continually thank God for you. This is what Christian partners, those committed to fellowship in the gospel, can say. Beyond that, in verses 4 and 5, the point of those verses would be to emphasize that Christian partners should be able to say, I joyfully pray for you, make intercession for you in those verses. And then in verses 6 through 8, There's a settled uh, conviction of those who are gospel partners so that they can make a statement like this. I know, I know God is at work in you. And because of that, I love you in Christ. So we come to verses 9 through 11 and the last mark of genuine Christian partnership this, this morning. We see that Christian partners can say, I offer focused intercession for you. Now, this final mark of true Christian partnership might perhaps even be an extension of the second mark. Look just above it in verses 4 and 5. He says, I joyfully pray for you. And then in these verses, I think he shows us more of what that prayer looks like. And so this morning, we're going to be preaching on the idea of prayer and praying for each other. Now, when you hear that the preacher is going to preach on prayer, how does that make you feel? Perhaps some of you respond like I have from time to time when I heard the preachers preaching on prayer. I say, oh, no. Oh, no. Not again. I remember someone I really appreciate a lot, one of my former uh, professors in college. He said, you know, every time I hear a sermon on prayer, I get convicted. Perhaps that's been your experience before. 
So perhaps by me announcing prayer, oh boy. Or perhaps some of you are delighted. You're delighted in the theme and the concept because you realize that we all are dependent on God. We need to be in prayer. We need to be praying for each other. And this is the sort of church we need to have, right? One where people are interceding on behalf of each other to God. So you're delighted. This is a joyous thing. Perhaps there are others in the room who begin to make excuses. Things like, well, yeah, that was for Paul. He's like an apostle. Wasn't like that a job requirement for an apostle? That they pray. This is what they do. Uh, I'm just an average believer. Busy. I've got many things I'm doing. There's all sorts of excuses that we can make not to pray. Or perhaps... This excuse, perhaps some of you would say, you know, God already knows all about all of my needs. And since God already knows, I don't really have to be faithful in taking these needs to him or the needs of my family or the needs of other believers because God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of this world. Nothing surprises him and and he always meets my needs anyway. I want to take that last excuse for a moment, and I want to use it as a bridge into this passage. I think sometimes we make the excuse, or we don't pray enough, because we think that uh, God already knows all about our requests. Well, how does that excuse hold up to Philippians chapter 1? Well, in... Verse 6, if you remember, Paul says that he is confident that the one who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. You remember this passage? So Paul starts by issuing this statement to the Philippian congregation of his unwavering confidence that God will do a great work in them. What verse was that again? Verse 6, one of my favorite verses in the, in the first chapter. But then if you look down in verse 9, what does Paul begin to do in verse 9? In verse 9, after Paul's statement of confidence in God, he prays that God would make their love abound more and more, that they would approve excellent things, that they'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Actually, from my perspective... In verse 9, Paul prays that they would become a finished or a completed product. So I ask, why would Paul pray for something, verses 9 through 11, that he just said a few verses earlier, verse 6, that he knew, he knew God would do? What's the answer to this question? Maybe there's no good answer. Well, I put my puny mind to it this week, in the last few weeks, and, and started thinking about this. What are your possible answers? I think there are two possible answers. At least that's as far as I could go. First possibility is that perhaps Paul was not really confident that God would do it. That he would complete or perform this good work in the Philippians and sanctify them by the day or until the day of Jesus Christ. So he prays to make it happen or to help it happen. Okay, now what do you think of that answer? Yeah, good, thank you. There's some feedback. This is a southern church. This is a southern church. 
Midwest, you ask that question, nothing. I like it. So we don't like that answer. That's a terrible answer. I sure hope, preacher, you got a better answer. We're going to send you back. <laughs> right? The only other answer I could think of is this. Perhaps Paul believes that somehow our sovereign, all-knowing, all-planning, all-powerful God hears and responds to the prayers of believers for each other. In other words, somehow, and I don't profess to have the answers, you can ask some of the, maybe the older pastors, somehow God factored or factors in the prayers of people for each other when he does the good work of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So far from being a futile exercise in godliness, prayer bends the ear of God and moves the hand of God. And while full comprehension of these things is perhaps beyond us, we should still rejoice and exclaim the sovereign greatness and ability of our God. So so we keep on praying for each other because God responds to it. He listens to it. That's a vital lesson to learn in prayer. But I think that, you know, and that lesson was learned by just comparing verses 9 through 11 and verse 6 and the order. But there's, there are other lessons we can learn about prayer this morning. And, and these lessons will occur from the text of verses 9 through 11. And so if you have that handout with you, the first point I want to make is I want you to notice what we should pray for our partners in verse 9. I want you to notice what we should pray for our gospel partners. This is what I call the content of Paul's prayer request. The content of it. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As I come to this passage in verse 9 in particular, I'm struck with the depth of Paul's request. He doesn't simply pray for all the little Philippians across the world and move on. He also isn't drawn immediately at the beginning of this prayer to all of the physical needs in the congregation, although he'll get to that later in the letter. He is able to see beyond even his own physical needs because he's in house imprisonment in Rome. And he prays for their spiritual growth, for God to do a spiritual work in them. Specifically, he prays that God would give them abounding love. You see that in your text of Scripture, verse 9. That's the content of his prayer request, that you would have abounding love. Now, what I noticed in studying this phrase this week is this is not a unique request for Paul. As a matter of fact, in your notes, you've got a little black shaded section where I bring out one verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. Just to show you that this is a normal request of Paul for believers. Abounding love. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So, you see, we can't simply just, you know, get rid of this request. As if you just mentioned it once, maybe it's not significant. No, this is a normal request for Paul, that people would abound in love. So, as we go throughout this text, we'll learn more about abounding love. 
Now, love is a virtue that Paul often ranks very high in many of his discussions. It's one of three great Christian virtues, a triad of virtues, that he will often exalt and lift to these statuses that he calls Christians to pursue them. The great Christian triad is faith, hope, and love. In multiple texts throughout his epistles, he calls people to pursue these three things. Of course, Paul's fullest expression or description of love is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Here, in Philippians, Paul does not describe the essential nature of love as much as he simply assumes it, and he prays that it might abound still more and more. That is, that love would overflow all of its containers. That nothing could hold it in or gather it all up for the Philippian assembly. That they would have a super abundance of love. Now, if he does describe the nature of love at all, it's in the very next phrases in that he wants this superabounding love to spring forth in knowledge and in all discernment. You see that in your Bible? In knowledge and in all discernment. So I give you a definition of knowledge in your notes. It's the best definition that I found for it that I think holds, holds style the scriptures would use the term. Knowledge means grasping the full reality of something. It's understanding or grasping the full reality of a topic or a subject or an issue. In Paul's letters, he occasionally discusses knowledge and love in the same paragraph. And I'd give you a few references you could write down this week and study. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Paul emphasizes the importance of love over knowledge. And again, in that same book, in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, he says this. And maybe you remember this part of that great chapter. He says, if I have all knowledge, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. Nothing. In 1 Corinthians, Paul declares that knowledge is worthless without love. And in other words, knowledge needs love to be profitable. But in Philippians 1, I think his point is a little bit different. In Philippians 1, he explores a corollary idea, and it's this. Love must be demonstrated in a knowledgeable way. That is, love is not mindless. Like Paul is saying, I just want this like overabundance of this gushy, warm sort of awesomeness, this love. But he says, no, I want it to be knowledgeable love. Knowledgeable love. This is why we don't give our children everything that they want. Why don't we give them everything they want? Because we know that not everything they want is going to help them. That's knowledgeable love. And that's what Paul prays for the Philippians, that you would have love, abounding love in knowledge. 
And then he uses the second word, discernment. I'll give you a definition of that in your notes as well. Discernment means insight. Another way to translate this, discernment means insight. It speaks of the practical application of knowledge, the way knowledge extends itself into different scenarios and decisions in our life. And so discernment is a type of understanding that goes beyond the surface and is able to help us make the right choices, you know, choosing between what is right and wrong. Or choosing even between what is, what is acceptable and what is best. And so Paul's urgent request for the Philippian believers was that they would overflow with love that was knowledgeable and discerning. That is what Paul prays for. But there's more here. And that's where we go to point two in your notes. I want you to secondly notice, letter B, notice why we should pray this for our partners. Okay, so I should pray for overflowing, discerning love for my children or for other believers in this church. But why, Paul? Why would you pray that? Or why should we pray that? And he gives three purposes for this request in the next two verses, in verses 10 and 11. The first two are very easy to, to see in your Bible. If you've got the ESV, for instance, you can see the word so repeated in verse 10 twice. And so I don't know if you mark in your Bible. I know that's even a controversial thing a little bit in some circles. My grandmother never marked in her Bible out of reverence for the word. But, you know, I kind of mark all through it and I'm highlighting and drawing notes to myself. After a while, people start making fun of me. You know, calling me names like K. Arthur and stuff because of all the colors I have in my Bible and circles and lines and stuff. If you mark in your Bible, you might consider marking those two words in verse 10. So that you may prove what is excellent. That's the first purpose. Second purpose is and so. So he's got these different purposes for why he would pray for overwhelming or overflowing discerning love. There are two of them there. The third one's a little harder to see, but I'll give that to you if you hang on to the end of the sermon. The first purpose I call the immediate purpose. The immediate purpose, it's found in that first so statement in verse 10. The immediate purpose of Paul's request is that they might make the right choices in life. He says, so that you might approve things or that which is excellent. And so Paul knew... That overflowing, discerning love would enable the Philippians to approve excellent things. That, That means to make the right choices in life. Now, this, uh, this little phrase, approve what is excellent, is found in one other place in the New Testament. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but if you write down the reference, you could look it up this week. I'll, I'll describe it to you. It's Romans 2.18. In Romans 2.18, Paul's describing the Jewish nation, the Israelite people, and he says that the Israelite people have confidence that they can approve what is excellent. Now, the reason the Jewish people have this confidence in Romans 2 is because they have the law of God. See, they have this advantage. God has given them his expectation for a people in the law of Moses. So they know God's will better than any of the other nations. So the Jews think we can approve what is excellent. Now, ironically, Paul probably, he probably doesn't agree with them. Although they should be able to have the ability to prove the excellent things. They're not doing that. They rejected Christ, for instance. 
But in our text, this text says that we can. We, as believers in Christ, can approve the excellent things, and so Paul prays for it. He prays for abounding love that discerns appropriately so that we might make the best choices in life. So in a moment of application, as we consider this first purpose of Paul, and we consider our Christian brothers and sisters in the room, perhaps some even in our own families, I want to ask you a few questions. First of all, I'll ask you this question. I hope we can all agree on the answer to this one. Do you desire that other believers in this church, perhaps other believers in your family, would make right choices? I mean, how much do you want that for your kids? Some sort of temptation in front of them, some sort of important decision where, you know, if they choose one way, that could be, like, really painful. Really painful. Tears. I mean, it could affect their whole life. So do you desire that God would enable your family or your believers to make right choices? What's the answer to that question? Yes, of course, preacher. Follow-up question. How much time do you devote to praying for them as they make those choices? Well, that's like not a fun question. How many hours, how many minutes this past week did you intercede for other believers in this church that you love and you want them to make the right choice about life? Perhaps you say, I don't even know what to pray for. May I suggest that you pray for this overflowing, discerning love that will help them make the right choice? But Paul's concern does not stop there. Verses 10 and 11, he goes to the second purpose. He's got this immediate purpose that they would make the right choices. The greater purpose, that's the second blank. I'm not all about blanks, but I know some of you like to fill in all of them. The greater purpose. What was Paul's greater purpose? Well, that's verses 10 and 11. Middle verse 10 says, And so, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I describe the second purpose as that they would be the right type of person, that they'd be the right type of people, I should say. The second half of verse 10 into verse 11, Paul actually declares this related but greater purpose for love that makes right choices. That is, that our child or the other believer for which we pray, would be or become the right type of person. That's a deeper purpose. In this passage, the way Paul first states that idea is he said that they would become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word pure here means sincere or without hidden motives. It means that there'd be no spot, no moral blemish, moral blemish in this church, in these believers. He says that they'd be blameless means that no one, no one would be able to find fault or blame them for their character or their actions. And Paul prays that these believers would be able to do this 
for the day of Jesus Christ. In some of your Bibles, that little word for can be translated until. And uh, I think either translation is fine. Uh, I think that the little word for carries with it the idea that the day of Christ would be in their view. In other words, that the day of Christ would be their ultimate goal. And so Paul prays that the Philippians might be pure and blameless with a mind toward or a mind set on the day when we all stand before Jesus Christ and we give an account of our lives. Now that little phrase, for the day of Jesus Christ, I think is an important one because it shows us the future orientation of Paul's prayer for other people. Okay, so, you know, as we're praying for other believers in this assembly or people in our church, we can pray about their character, we can pray about the decision, but one of the things we should keep in mind is that God might be using this to point this person back, or point them forward, I should say, to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we pray for people, we should be praying that God would allow them to experience their trial or their temptation with a mind toward the day, in purity, and blamelessness. And men and women, we, we need people to pray this for our church. We need these sort of requests to be made for the individuals of our church. Oh God, may that person be pure and blameless. With a mind toward the day of Christ. We can't get this right as a church. We're in big trouble. The day of Christ is our goal, pure and blameless in our conduct. And so Paul prays to the only one who can make that happen. Then in verse 11, Paul restates this idea more fully. So I I would translate something like this. You'll be pure and blameless. That is, you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. It's another way of saying pure and blameless, filled with the fruits of righteousness. One commentator says the picture here is of an Orchard of trees loaded down with a full crop of good fruit. And so overwhelming, insightful love will enable us to be the right type of people. People loaded down with fruit. He's going to tell us a little bit more about what that fruit is later in the chapter. So I'm going to leave that alone until verse 22. But this fruit of righteousness probably speaks of the fruit that is the outcome or the results of our justification or righteousness. And just as Jesus is the only true source of our justification, he is the only source of this fruit. So Paul says, the fruit that comes from Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. No self-help manual will enable you to produce the fruit of righteousness. It comes only from Jesus. So Paul prays that God would do this because God's the only one who can make it happen. And so as he's going through verses 10 and 11, and they're, action, they're packed, they're filled, he brings all of these spiritual requests about the growth of the Philippians to the mind of God, and he, he issues these desires and these requests to God. One of the things I hope you would see is that Paul is fervently praying for the spiritual development of these believers in this assembly. You know, as, as I was growing up, my mother invested much in me. 
I just had someone ask this morning, hey, do you have siblings? And uh, I, had the, I had the experience growing up of being an only child. Okay, so that might explain a lot. You say, oh, now I understand why it's the way it is. Yes, but I grew up on a hill where all the cousins, we, we all lived on the same hill. So I did have extended siblings. And I got beat on enough in my life. As an only child, my mother wasn't able to have any other children. Uh, she invested heavily in my spiritual development. As I look back on it now, I think, man, she really gave a lot. One of the ways she did that is our church had an Awana program, like this church has an Awana program, I think starting this Wednesday, free commercial for Awana. And uh, in the Awana program, the children's program that our church had, one of the things that they would highlight would be scripture memory. And so she was convinced from very early on to make Awana really interesting and fun for me. And she wanted me to learn the scriptures. And so uh, I have to confess that it worked. Uh, I never missed a Wednesday night. I was an Awana geek, Awana nerd. I loved Awana. I was a Sparky of the Year, twice. (laughs) And primarily because of my mother's excitement and energy for it, I memorized a lot of scripture. Remember, I would plow through the books. They didn't have like a, you know, you couldn't say only a certain amount of section. I'd just plow through them. My mother helped me. Then you'd plow through a book, you'd plow through the workbook, and then be like, you know, we're four weeks in, what are we going to do now? Uh, we got this Awana geek. We've never seen anyone like this before. And so they would say, well, why don't you just start memorizing verses in the Bible? And so I think one of the first years I was in it, they said, start in James 1.1 and start memorizing verses. Every ten verses you say, there'll be a section or five verses. So my mother sat with me, and I memorized the entire book of James And to this day, God brings some of those verses to my mind. I didn't know what all of them meant then. One of the verses that God brings to my mind frequently is I think about prayer is James 5.16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. Could we use the word fervent? To describe your prayer for your family and this church? Could we say that you are you have passionate intensity and a rigid commitment to prayer? Because you want them to be the right type of person. Not only make the right choices. That's a good immediate purpose. I'm going to choose in this crisis point the right thing, but I want them to be the right kind of person. So I pray fervently that God would do it. I pray to a God who listens and hears, responds to the prayers of believers for each other. But there's one part of our text that's not yet been addressed. And I'll have to pick up the speed a little bit, but number three, the third purpose is what I call the ultimate purpose of Paul's request. Found in the very last phrase of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. 
The ultimate purpose of Paul's request is that God receives praise and glory through their lives. All of this, all of this prayer, all of our life is for the ultimate goal of all things, the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate purpose, perhaps even a reason why Paul interceded for the Philippians. And it's a reason why we should keep on interceding and interceding and interceding for other people. It's for the glory of God, and it's for His praise. You see, we should pray that God works mightily in the life of other believers here so that he receives the glory and he gets the credit. The first two purposes that are marked out by the so are are about the Philippians themselves, about those people. So that they would do this and so that they would be this. But this last one that's marked out with the word two is about God. God the Father. And so this ultimate purpose or reason for our praying for other people is found in the text. But I want to, in in the moments I have left this morning, I want to show you that this ultimate purpose can be seen all throughout your Bible. And the way I'll do that is just dip you into both the Old and the New Testament. There are two other outstanding examples of people who were driven by the praise and the glory of God. I mean, there's a whole host of them, but there's two that we'll look at this morning. So turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. And the first example that we'll look at, if you're taking notes, you may just write down two examples. Number one, Moses. Moses. In Exodus 32, of course, you've got the golden calf incident where the children of Israel begin to commit all sorts of immorality and idolatry. They exchange the worship of the true God, Yahweh, for... A golden calf. Let's read the narrative, then I'll make a few comments on this. uh, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 3. So all the people took off the rings and gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we'll make a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the word for play here is not playing dodgeball. Engaged in immorality in this worship. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, notice the response of God. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may 
burn against, burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses, verse 11. Notice the response of Moses. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did we bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them in the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Isaac or Abraham, Isaac and Israel or Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised. I will give it to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord, notice the final response of God. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on these people. I think this is a great example when Paul is, Paul is telling the Philippians, you know, you really, uh, I pray for you and I pray that everything in your life redounds to the glory and praise of God. Paul's text in Philippians 1 is about prayer and intercession for people. And here Moses intercedes for Israel. And he does so in a few significant ways. First, he implores God to turn from his burning anger. Don't let your wrath, God, uh, consume them. Then near the end of this text, he, he encourages God to remain faithful to your promises. God, you made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Come through on those promises. But you, did you notice in the text the very first way that Moses appeals to him? It's found in verse 12. And that's why we came to this text. Verse 12. God Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them on the face of the earth? One of the things I think you begin to see here and then later on in the chapter is that Moses is concerned for what others might say about the name of God. The character of God. Speaking of Moses here, but but as you go throughout the, the rest of this text, speaking of the character of God. And so within this narrative, we learn that Moses desired the best for Israel, and he prays that way primarily because he wanted the glory of God's name to be great in the land. He didn't want any Egyptians to question the character and the power of God. And so so he appeals to God in that way. This idea is a driving purpose of all of creation and the whole of the Bible. From time to time, students used to ask me as I would teach classes in the New Testament, they said, uh, if you were to write a biblical theology, a book that describes a unifying theme of the whole Bible, what would that one unifying theme be for you? And my answer was something like this. It's the glory and praise of the Father, the sovereign ruler of the universe. I think that's why we have our Bibles. I think that's why Jesus did what he did. The glory and praise of the Father, the sovereign rule of the universe. If I preach in this pulpit for the next 20 or 30 years and don't say this concept at least a thousand times, you need to ask for your money back. See, all all that salary we gave you, we want it all back. Because you did not preach... That we exist 
for the glory and praise of the Father. Now go to the New Testament. We'll see one last text. We'll conclude this way. In the New Testament, one last example of someone who was driven in this way by the glory of the Father. And the text I want you to go to is 1 Corinthians 15. The glory of the Father was Jesus' most significant motivation in his earthly ministry as well. So as you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, in this text, Paul reveals that Jesus came to the cross, he died on the cross, and he rose again in order to defeat sin and death. Remember the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 verses about the, the future bodily resurrection. Jesus came to defeat death and hell, and so by the end of the chapter, Paul announces Jesus' victory. Look in your Bible at the middle part of verse 54. Final conclusion to the text, he says, Then shall come to pass the saying, right in the middle of verse 54, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? You see that? What Paul does to close this chapter is he issues a threefold taunt against death. which is an extremely powerful taunt. He he takes two texts from the Old Testament and he weaves them together to issue this taunt. Now what you need to understand is that most authors during this era, Jewish, Greek, Latin authors, they all spoke as death as the victor. Death has this insatiable gullet. It's always swallowing things up. So death comes raining down on people. It sucks them in. It swallows them down. But Paul reverses the imagery. And he has death, the great swallower, being swallowed up by Jesus. So that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? And when Christ comes back to pronounce this victory over death and hell, I want you to notice one last thing. Notice what will happen. Look at verse 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. This is a key verse in this passage. It says, When all things are subjected to him, that's Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that's the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Christ. That, here's a purpose. God may be all in all. The very end of time, once all the enemies of God are subdued, death, hell, Satan, sin, the Son will subject himself to the Father so that God would be all in all. See that phrase, all in all? The phrase is a bit mysterious to me. I, I think that perhaps the best way to understand it is so that God would be all things to all beings. All things to all beings. In other words, that all of created, or remember we read Psalm 148? All of heaven. Hail, wind, snow, fire, kings, nations, peoples, worshiping God. What drove Jesus throughout his eternal existence 
And what drives him to subject himself to the Father at the end of time, after subduing all of these things, is so that God would be all things to all created beings. I think he's describing the voluntary worship of all of creation to God at the end of time. And so, men and women, our prayers for our children and our spouses are bigger than our spouses and our children. It's bigger than their cancer. It's bigger than their disease. It's bigger than the threat that they might be experiencing or the temptation that they would experience to immorality. It's even bigger than that person that we long for walking away from church. Our prayers are for God's glory, His praise through the choices and the decisions and the experiences that fellow believers make in this world. And so why, preacher, why should I make intercessory prayer an urgent or important part of my life? Will you pray for the spiritual development of the person so that they might be the right person and you recognize or realize that that all will lead to the glory of God. This singular fo- focus motivated Christ to keep going, to keep giving, to keep loving. And it must motivate us to keep praying. The glory of the Father should motivate us to intercede for our families daily. To bow on our knees at the end of a hard day and plead for our children and our spouse to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. She caused us to wake up a few minutes early so that we can beseech God for our friend. Friend that we have in our grace gathering or in this church. That they'd be able to say no to temptation and be able to approve excellent things and make wise choices. And this glory of the Father should motivate us to fill private times in our vehicles, not with mindless, numbing music or endless conversations on our cell phones, but by going before the throne of grace, committing to take the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes of that time in that car to pray urgently for my children, my grandchildren, other believers in this church, that they would pursue God and that all of this would abound to the glory and the praise of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for how patient the congregation has been in working through this text. It's a powerful prayer. We're struck with the spiritual nature of Paul's requests. We compare our own prayers sometimes to this. They're so artificial, they're so surface or lacking. And so, Father, you, I, I would pray that you would enable us to bear the genuine mark of gospel partners, that we'd pray for people in these ways. We'd be driven by these concepts, that uh, other believers would make wise choices, that they'd be the right people, and that all of this would, would do something even more than that that would do something for the glory and the praise of God the Father. We thank you for this, Lord. Pray that you do this work in our hearts and lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond by singing together. Let's stand.